Turn your Bibles to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. And as you do so, I'm going to give a little disclaimer on what you're about to hear. Sometimes people hear a sermon here, and something has just happened in their life that is extremely relevant to what sermon text I have chosen. And they'll ask me, why did you pick that passage? And I have to explain, we choose these chapters, these verses, these books, weeks, months, sometimes years in advance. And so when you hear something like this, I am not addressing anyone in this room or anyone following at home especially. Okay, And I'll explain more about that in a few minutes. Because I didn't know who was going to be in the hospital. I didn't know who was going to be sick. I didn't know who was going to be going through anything they're going through. But God knows. So we're beginning a new sermon series here that I'll explain in a moment. But first, I want you to hear the words of the Lord in Psalm 38. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Many of us grew up in churches singing certain songs. There was one I remember singing in the church I grew up in, and it had the following chorus. Maybe you've heard it. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Really? Happy all the day? And, and, and as a young child growing up singing that and other songs like that, what we, what we are forced to believe and absorb is that if I have faith in God, if I follow God, I should be happy all the day. For the next seven weeks or so, from now up until Easter, we are going to be looking 
at a specific type of psalm that we find in Scripture. It's not the happy all the day psalms. The psalms were meant to be sung by the people of God, used in their worship together. And as you read through the psalms, you'll start to see that there are a lot of topics in them that we don't often hear in our worship today. And I think that's an important lesson for us. To trust in God and be faithful to Him is not a matter of forcing ourselves to either actually be or pretend to be happy all the day. The Holy Spirit has given us significant portions of Scripture that put our sorrows into words. Psalms that teach us not only how to understand and deal with our sorrow, but even how to sing our sorrows. But sorrows come in a great variety. It was Leo Tolstoy who wrote wrote at the beginning of Anna Karenina, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Each of the Psalms that we look at in the next seven weeks are going to look at sorrow in a different way. Different sources of sorrow. Different reactions to our sorrow. And as we look at Psalm 38 this morning, we're going to see the words of David who wrote this Psalm as he is waiting for salvation. He's recognizing the difficult state that he is in, some of it his own fault, his own doing. Some of it brought on him by others when he was innocent. And he just wants it to end. He just, he's, he's tired of it. And he's crying out to God in his sorrow as he has forced to wait for salvation. The waiting, which I think we can all relate to in some way or another. The question is, what do we need to know while we wait for the salvation of God? It's the first thing that I I want us to see in this psalm that we need to know as we wait for the salvation of God is that sin will affect us. Sin will affect us. Throughout Psalm 38, there is a clear and repeated and honest recognition of guilt. David is going through some hard things. And rather than look for someone else to blame, whether it's God or other people, he first looks inward and says, it's me. I'm guilty. I've done some things. Verses 3 through 5, listen to this. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. That's great mixing of metaphors. They're over my head and they're too heavy. And then here's everybody's favorite life verse. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. And then verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Do you hear how he recognizes I have done wrong? Some of this, at least, is because of me. And this is an important step in moving forward. It's knowing where you're at, recognizing where you're starting from. And for all of us, as we did in our confession of sin this morning, we start with recognizing our sin, our guilt. Like the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we're not fooling anyone. We're not fooling God. We're not fooling the people around us. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful, and He is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. So David is waiting on God to save him, and in the meantime, he's looking around at his problems, and his first confession is, some of this is my doing. 
When we choose to ignore God's way, there are always consequences. A lot of this psalm is going to be uncomfortable for us. Because David, the author of the psalm, believes some things that we struggle to believe. There are sometimes physical effects, consequences of our sin. And in the age of germs and microscopes and a detailed knowledge of the human immune system and communicable diseases, it's it's not natural for us to see or experience or hear about illness and think, hey, maybe this is happening because someone sinned. That doesn't occur to us, does it? The only thing we think of is, what in my medicine cabinet is going to help me right now? We don't think, hey, what's the sin that might be behind this? Because that sounds a lot like superstition, doesn't it? And yet, Scripture gives us clear, ample testimony that it's just as wrong to say that sickness is never caused by sin as it is to go the other direction and say that sickness is always caused by sin. And, and the reason we, we, I think, struggle to accept that sickness may be caused by sin is because we think that that would force us to conclude that it's always the result of sin. And Scripture doesn't push us to either extreme. But for those who struggle to believe that it's ever the result of sin, we need to look at words like Jesus said in John 5 after healing a man. He then finds him in the temple and says, See, I've made you well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He cautions him. He says, Look, I made you better. Don't keep on sinning because you're going to expose yourself to something worse. Or Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, as they are dealing with a problem of people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and, and gobbling everything up and letting the poor people who had to work all day and show up late, basically mistreating them. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul says, look, there's some physical problems among you, and it's because of your guilt in this particular matter. So I want to be clear that not every time, maybe not even most of the time, says your pastor who is still trying to get over pneumonia right now, but sometimes, sometimes when we are stubborn in our sin, God will graciously slow us down and get our attention by touching our bodies, making us weak enough to pay attention and to repent. This is an act of mercy from God who wants us to learn to despise our sin and turn from it lest we be led to something worse. David also confesses that there are more than just physical effects to our sin. Listen to verses 6 through 10. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble. I'm crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. This is a man who is, who is battling emotional, psychological turmoil. There is a real psychological and emotional struggle because of our sin. Sin puts us at odds with our maker and with our purpose. 
And many of you know that I lived for a number of years overseas. And there was one time, before I was married, I was in, a, in an apartment with three other single guys, four of us living together, and there was one appliance in our kitchen that we assumed, you know where this is going, we assumed it was the dishwasher. Now, I since learned there were no dishwashers in China. But there was this device we assumed was a dishwasher, and we would put all our dirty dishes in it, and we would turn it on high, and we'd leave it on for you know, an hour, expecting it to get the job done, and, and the glasses would all break and not get clean, and the fuses would short out all around the house, and, and the, 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 the whole thing would just start shaking. and it was, Something was going wrong, because it wasn't a dishwasher. It was a sanitizer. And, and an older lady came in and showed us, no, you just put clean dishes in, five minutes, boom, they're sanitized. Okay, We were using it not according to its design, not according to its purpose, and it was creating havoc with the device and with our whole house. And that's just what happens when we don't follow God's design for us, which is sin. When we leave His design for us and live in a way contrary to how He has made us, it puts us at odds with ourselves, and it puts us at odds with God. And there are consequences for that. When we're not functioning the way we were created to function, it puts an emotional burden on us, psychological stress. And there's one more way David describes, us, describes that sin affects us. It affects us physically, it affects us emotionally, and it affects us socially. In verse 11, in the days of quarantine, we understand this. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. David's health, his emotional wellness, and even his relationships are all affected by the sin in his life to live differently from the path that God has set before him. The point is, brothers and sisters, we cannot play with fire and not expect to get burned. Sin's consequences are not just eternal judgment which is how we often think of the consequences of sin. But sin also affects our bodies, our minds, and our relationships. So as we wait, as we sorrow in the waiting for salvation, we have to know that sometimes the problems from which we want to be saved are primarily our own doing, the effects of sin upon us. As we confessed in our confession of sin this morning, asking the Lord would deepen within us our sorrow, for the wrongs we have done and for the good we have left undone. And the gospel to those who sorrow as they see the effects of sin is that your Savior takes on your sickness. We just sang a whole song based on this passage in Isaiah 53, describing Christ as the one who was despised, rejected by men. That's the social consequences. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the emotional consequences. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced, here's the physical struggle, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Yes, God wants us to see, to recognize, and to confess the effects of our sin, but also in doing so, to recognize that your Savior took those sins upon Himself in order that you don't have to eternally deal with the effects of your sin. Because the only way that we will be saved from the effects of our sin 
is if sin itself is taken away from us. And that's what Jesus has done. So that you who sorrow, you who sorrow now may be healed by the removal of sin in Jesus Christ. Because he didn't just apply a temporary fix. What would you think if you went to a doctor suffering from, just I'll pick an illness, pneumonia, we'll say. And he just gives you a package of tissues and says, this should help with your runny nose. Here's some cough drops to help your throat feel better. That doctor is just dealing with your symptoms and doing nothing to take away the real source of your problem. What Christ has done is not just take away, Lord, make me stop feeling the effects of my sin. I don't want to feel sick anymore. I don't want the emotional distress anymore. I don't want the relationship problems anymore. Those are the effects of the deeper problem. And that's what Christ takes away. Once that's done, you might still have some sniffles for a few weeks. You might still have a cough for a month or two. But the sickness is gone if you will wait. There is sorrow in the waiting, but the waiting has hope. David's situation, however, is not just being affected by his own sin. There's more going on here. Those who see his weakness, his enemies, they're quick to pounce. And so as we wait for the salvation of the Lord and see the way that sin affects us, we also need to see that evil will afflict us. Sin will affect us, but evil will afflict us. For David, this came through undisguised human enemies. Verse 12, he says, Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Now, if that was just simply a matter of David experiencing the consequences of his sin, you know, people criticizing him and saying, look what he has done. He has left the Lord and, and making him feel guilty over what he's done. That's one thing. But that's not what's happening here. Instead, it seems like because David has done the right thing, because he has confessed his sin before the Lord and humbled himself, now his enemies are moving in on him. Verse 18 and 19. David says, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. So the writer of this psalm, David, has two things happening at the same time. The consequences and effects of his own sin and the unprovoked attacks of evil people against him. And we need to hold that balance in view. That you can't simplify all the troubles in life to one or the other. Because that's unhealthy. It is unhealthy to see everything that goes wrong in your life, everything that causes pain and sorrow and difficulty, and see it all through the lens of, I'm being attacked. I'm a victim here. It's all something else. Sometimes it is. But it's just as wrong to see it through the other lens of, I am bad and I deserve all this. This is all my fault. I could have stopped this. I could have done better. God is punishing me. Both of those are unhealthy extremes that are not true 100% of the time. We can't believe that it's always a punishment from God because haters are going to hate and players are going to play. If you know, you know. And, and some of the troubles that we face have nothing at all to do with us. They happen because God's enemies attack God's people. It has been true for thousands of years from the very beginning. And so we sorrow not just even though we are faithful to God. Sometimes, as David declares here, we are sorrowing because we're faithful to God. Verse 20, those who render me evil for good 
accuse me because I follow after good. So to think that everything is a punishment from God for a sin in our life is a karmic, sub-Christian view that is not scriptural at all. And so if your brother or sister is sick in their bed, your first thought should not be what they do to deserve this. When you are sick or struggling or opposed, your first thought does not need to be what I do to deserve this. What have I done wrong? Sure, consider that. Consider maybe God is trying to get your attention. Examine your heart. Confess any sin that is there. But recognize also that there is just plain evil in the world. Opposing God and His kingdom. And there are people who are so deceived by the enemy that they are used by God's enemy to attack the kingdom of God. This is legitimate spiritual warfare. And sometimes we are affected by it directly because evil will afflict you. But there's good news in the midst of this. When evil afflicts you because you are associated with Christ, you're in good company. Jesus tells us this in Matthew, Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, haven't we gotten so used to, in, in our culture and in our time, we've gotten so used to this idea that, that the Christian faith is respected and it's accepted and it's looked up to and, and, and it's a good thing. And now that, that the pendulum is swinging and it doesn't feel that way so much anymore, we feel like something's wrong. Like, oh no, We're, we must be doing something wrong if people don't like us for being a follower of Christ. But no, Jesus says, look, People have persecuted the prophets as long as they have been around. And if you are faithful to God, you will be persecuted. You will be reviled. You will be afflicted by evil people. Jesus also put it this way. Jesus talks about this a good bit. I mean, we get worried when people don't want to believe Jesus, when they think poorly of Jesus. But he, Jesus tells us that's to be expected in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So maybe, maybe that is a comfort. Small comfort, but comfort nonetheless to know that others suffer like this, afflicted by evil, that Jesus suffered in the same way, that it's not surprising or unusual that evil men and women will stand against God's people, but the real comfort is here. In John 16, Jesus goes on to say, I told you these things so that you will have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You'll have trouble. You will be afflicted, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The gospel is not just that Jesus gets you, that He understands you, that He sympathizes with you. That's true, and that's good, and that's beautiful. But the gospel is far more than that. The gospel is the good news that because of the victory of God in Jesus Christ, the evil that afflicts us will one day be no more. Amen? Evil will afflict us, but it will not endure. Which leads to the third point that I want us to see in this psalm. That sin will affect us and therefore we sorrow. Evil will afflict us and therefore we sorrow. 
but God will answer us. If you look back to the very beginning of this psalm, even before verse 1, there's a title. Many of the psalms have a title. And depending on your translation, it might say something like, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. Now, I don't often disagree with Bible translators. They know the language far better than I do, but that is a bad translation. It's not for the memorial offering. It's rather, as the NIV says, a petition, or as the NASB says, a, a memorial, or other translations say, to bring remembrance. This is a psalm of someone who feels forgotten. Someone who is reminding God, petitioning God, calling out to God, not in a bitter or angry way of a doubter or a disbeliever, but a confident cry to a God that he knows is hearing and will answer. God will answer us. Verse 12, he says, Those who seek my hurt, they speak of ruin, and they meditate treachery all day long. Now, when we hear people speaking ill of us or something we think is true and good, what's our impulse? What's our instinct? You want to speak up, don't you? This is why I don't have social media. Because I, I cannot endure, while people speak falsely, I can't let them persist in their error. I would spend all day just correcting people online, given half a chance. That's why I don't even start. And that's, I mean, it's understandable. We don't want to let what we consider good to be spoken of as evil. Scripture says that. And we don't want others to speak poorly of us and threaten us and not stand up for ourselves. But listen to what David does in verses 13 and 14. I'm like a deaf man. Can't hear you. I'm like a mute man who doesn't even open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and in, my, in whose mouth are no rebukes. David says, no, you say what you want. I'm, I'm going to close my ears. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to let you prattle on in your unrighteous, unholy, unloving, untrue talk. Why? Because I know you're going to be answered. Someone else is going to answer on my behalf. Verse 15, for you, O Lord, do I wait. O Lord, my God, it's you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. The writer of this psalm knows he doesn't need to defend himself because he has a defender, a savior. And he can be patient when he feels wronged by others because he serves a God who will answer, who will soon make things right. So God will answer the evil that afflicts him. But what about the sin in his own heart? What about David's guilt? Doesn't he deserve to be punished by God? What kind of answer does he expect there? Well, look how he understands God's punishment in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. One of the big lessons that parents are supposed to be taught with regard to disciplining your children is this. Don't discipline while you're angry. Don't discipline the child in that moment when you are angry at them. You, you pause, you take a break, you catch your breath, you refocus. Because when we discipline in our anger, we go too far. What God does, yes, He is angered by our sin. Yes, He disciplines His children. But He doesn't discipline in His anger or in His wrath. His wrath, His anger, they're not a loss of self-control. They are a righteous response. God disciplines us in love. His discipline is to turn us away from a self-destructive path and lead us towards something better. This is what the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. Not the one He's angry with, the one He loves. And He chastises every son or daughter whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as children. 
What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So whether it's the sin that affects us and brings down the loving redirection and discipline of God, or whether it's the evil that afflicts us, forcing us to look to God for rescue and for vindication, in our sorrow, as we wait for salvation, we trust that either way, God will answer. And so David, the psalmist, cries out in verse 21, Do not forsake me, O God! Oh my God, be not far from me! Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation! Now that might sound desperate, complaining, almost helpless, but it's not. Those who've been coming to our Sunday school the past month or so know that we've been looking at the name of God. What's in His name? What does His name mean to us? And we've especially looked at that name Yahweh, the covenant name of God that reminds us that God has bound Himself. He has committed Himself to saving His people and He will not be turned away from that. That's the name that David calls upon here. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh! This is the Yahweh who in Deuteronomy 31 said, Be strong, courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is Yahweh your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. That is why David had confidence to pray, Do not forsake me, Yahweh. You said you would not leave or forsake. And I call you out to be true to your promise. David calls upon a God who has promised not to forsake, a God who has promised to save, a God who is unfailingly true to His words. So for you and for me and for all who sing the sorrow of waiting for salvation, the God who may feel far away has drawn near in Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has not, He will not forsake. The gospel is the good news that the sin within us and the evil around us, God has answered already in Christ taking the burden and penalty of our sin on Himself and winning the final victory over evil. Is that His final answer? Yes, that is God's final answer. It is Christ. So every problem you face is answered in that. Because for the child of God, what burden of sin, what consequence of your guilt is not covered by the blood of Jesus? None. And for the child of God, what force of evil what action of the enemy stands outside the victory of Christ? None. God has answered in Christ. So when we say again and again at this church that we are living out the gospel together, that's, that's not meant to be just a cute catchphrase. What that means is that the gospel is God's answer to all our sorrow. And all we do when we live that out is we take that one answer and we apply it Everywhere that it is needed, to every sorrow, every difficulty, every trouble, we apply the gospel because that is God's answer. We know God will answer. And we know this because in Christ, He has answered and answered fully. Now, I would be surprised if you cannot in some way relate to something David has said in Psalm 38. You don't have to be on your deathbed or in the hospital because of some guilty thing you've done, and you don't have to be facing down vicious enemies who are plotting your downfall. Maybe you are, and if so, I'm sure you can relate. But even if not, we all know that feeling, that sense that something is not right in the world. 
And we want God to make it right. And we're calling out to him and we grow impatient and frustrated that it's not done yet. Scripture teaches us to take that sorrow and to sing it. To sing it as a song of frustration, yes, but also as a song of hope and expectation. A hope that is based on the character of the God we cry out to, the God who has promised to answer. So I started this sermon by referencing a song that we don't ever sing in this church. And now I am happy all the day. Well, now I want to close by referencing a song we sing often in this church. A song that's a little more accurate, I think. A song that has a very uplifting melody to it, and rightfully so. But when you listen to the words without the melody, you start to hear that they are the words of someone who is inhabiting the sorrow and the frustration of waiting. Listen to these words. Words that call us to look to a trustworthy God who has to reach deeper than our sin and deeper than our struggles and deeper than our sorrows to deliver us. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. I couldn't do it. Sin would reduce me to a state of utter despair. I would be completely in despair. But through your free goodness, my spirits revive. And he that first made me now keeps me alive. The mercy of God is deeper than your sorrows. So let us follow the path of your sorrows. Don't ignore them. Don't just put on a happy face and pretend they're not there. Follow the path of your sorrows because they will lead you to the unshakable goodness and mercy of God. And so as we prepare to sing, notice the lyrics. Though we sing our sorrows, it is the mercy of God that is the theme of our song. Join me in prayer as we prepare to sing the mercy of God through our sorrow. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the theme of our song, which is Your mercy. And it is only in our sorrow that Your mercy is made real to us. Only in our sickness that Your power to heal is made manifest. Only in the midst of our enemies does the table You have prepared for us look so beautiful. Only in the midst of our frustration is your faithfulness made real. Your mercy is the theme of our song and we thank you for it. Teach us to wait. Teach us to follow the path of our sorrows because it will always lead us to the goodness of the God who answers. We thank you for this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.